What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to the Bunker Daily, the show that stays on its best humor, even in the worst of all possible worlds. My name is Ian Dunt. I'm the editor of politics.co.uk and the author of How to Be a Liberal. I'm joined today by Jonathan Porters, professor of economics at King's College London, senior fellow of the UK and a changing Europe, and my go-to expert on the economics of immigration. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? I'm not bad. So I figured that we would have sort of a conversation generally about you know, the economics of, of immigration, um, but sort of going to the background of it for a moment. Can you sort of walk us through basically the opportunities and, and the um, challenges that immigration throws up for a country like Britain? I mean, firstly, I suppose the most obvious, you know, what, what are the opportunities that it offers? In general, we economists tend to believe that uh, markets are a pretty good al- a way of allocating resources. <laughs> and in particular, that if you let people decide where they want to work, then on the whole, they're likely to make better decisions than if the state does it for them. Um, uh, So just as we wouldn't say that the state should, that we'd have a more productive or better organized economy if the state determined that I should work in a restaurant or a car factory rather than a university, um, or that uh, you should work as a philosopher rather than as a podcast producer and political journalist, there's no particular reason that economic efficiency is served by telling people they can't work in particular countries. So at the very simple level, letting people, if you let people move, they're likely to move where they see themselves being better off, where they see themselves as having economic opportunities. Um, and the basic economics of that are no re- not really any different from the standard economics of free trade as advanced by Adam Smith and David Ricardo. Um, you'll just get um, a more productive economy if you let people um, make choices. Now, of course, in practice, uh, for lots of reasons, you, you know, people do not have completely free choice about what they do or where they work. But in general, still, the expansion of people's opportunities that relaxing immigration controls means, on the whole, is likely to produce better outcomes both for them and the countries that they move to, like the UK. Is there... Um, I mean, people always talk about the sort of productivity problem in in the UK. Does immigration have any bearing on that? It's not entirely clear. I mean, you know, immigration could affect productivity in several different ways. Um, It could reduce productivity if employers decided it was better to employ cheaper immigrants and invest in productivity-enhancing technology. Mm. On the other hand, it could increase productivity if immigrants um, are complementary to uh, current workers because they have different skills, um, different knowledge, different backgrounds, or different experiences. So it's an empirical question as to how immigration affects productivity. What evidence we have, both on an international and at a UK level, is pretty positive. To the extent that the data tells us anything, it suggests that countries that are more open to immigration are more productive and see higher productivity growth. And to the extent the data tells us about anything about the UK, it suggests that higher immigration is actually associated with higher productivity rather than lower productivity. That may well differ between different sectors, different parts of the UK. But on the whole, it seems that the, the implications are broadly positive. And wh- why? What, what is it that an immigrant would do that would increase productivity? 
there are a number of different ways immigration could increase productivity. Take, for example, the, the sector that I work in, the higher education sector, in particular economics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or academic economics. Now, um, a very large proportion of academic economists in the UK, and especially in London, are were not born in this country. Do I think that because there are so many foreign economists here, that that must push down my wages or reduce my job opportunities um, as the very, very simple lump of labor model uh, view that people often have of immigration would would imply. You know, more competition, higher supply must mean um, that either I lose opportunities or my wages are decreased. That's almost certainly not true. On the contrary, having that massive good economist in London gives me more potential co-authors, means that we can have world-class economics departments in London, mean that companies that need economists are more likely to locate in London, makes all of us, both economists in London and probably the wider London economy more productive than it otherwise would have been. Um, so I think that's, that's pretty easy to understand, actually. I think most people grasp that. Most people understand why for high-skilled professions, actually having more High-skill immigrants is probably good both for the economy as a whole and even for people who uh, um, face competition from those immigrants but also benefit from those spillover effects. But it may also operate in more subtle ways uh, because the economy is, is a complex interaction of different sectors. So, for example, in Italy um, and in the U.S., research has shown that low-skilled immigration is actually good for the productivity of relatively high-skilled U.S. or Italian-born native women because it opens up their opportunity set. If you have um, migrants who, for example, can perform, can, can look after your kids, then you relax the constraint which otherwise would, would um, exist on high-skilled women who would like to work being able to go out and work. Uh, and and we have evidence that that's a real impact. So even low-skilled immigration can, in the right circumstances, potentially promote increased productivity overall. Is there any kind of demographic element to this? I mean, typically we always say, you know, we have a demographic problem in this country, lots of old people, and immigrants, I presume, tend to be younger. Immigrants tend to be young. They tend to be of working age. So there's certainly uh, um, some demographic benefit from that and some fiscal benefit because uh, the people who come typically tend to work. Um, and since we didn't have to pay to educate them, overall, that translates to a net net benefit. On the other hand, I do think it's a mistake to rest too much of the arguments for immigration on the demographics. There are benefits, but ultimately, uh, you can't solve demographic problems just by immigration. You actually have to adjust your society to enable people to keep working longer, work, being more productive later in life, um, and ensure that uh, that we provide for people who who are retired um, and that we can finance health and care for those people. You can't get you know, immigration can smooth some of the transition issues. Um, so I'm not saying it's not helpful or relevant, um, but it's not really the answer to the necessary transformation of society and economy that results from uh, from from us getting older. And what and sort of looking at the challenges of immigration. I mean, the first one you sort of mentioned the lump of labour fallacy, this idea of immigrants take jobs. I mean, it, there's been a lot of work that sort of challenges that. It, it it must be at least sometimes true, mustn't it? In some sectors, in some locations, and um, some skill levels. Well, you would think so, although we've got precious little evidence of that in the UK. 
as I noted, you know, obviously it applies to some jobs. I mean, I know that I've applied for jobs which I didn't get because somebody, uh, um, uh, because they went to an immigrant, right? Mm -hmm. So I lost a job because an immigrant got it. That doesn't mean with indignation about this for some (laughs) reason. The fact that immigrants take individual jobs that uh, the natives would otherwise have taken doesn't mean that they reduce employment overall, um, even for those individuals, um, because they also increase, as I said before, the overall size of the cake, the overall size of the economy, the overall number of jobs, um, and the overall number of job opportunities. And certainly, I mean, the, you know, just at looking at the very basic level uh, statistics, we've seen the highest immigration to the UK um, in recorded history over the past 10 years or so, at the same time as we've seen the highest employment rate for people born here in recorded economic history, both at the same time. So at an aggregate level, um, and, and more detailed econometric al- analysis seems to confirm that. What is more likely is that there are wage effects, that some people's wages are indeed pushed down by migration. And we do have some evidence of that. Not that immigration depresses wages overall, but that it uh, um, that it may depress wages to some extent for some people some of the time. Those effects aren't very big, but they almost certainly are there in the data. Yeah. Can you talk us through that? Because that became, I mean, during the sort of Brexit debate, that more than sort of benefits, more than jobs really became the key sort of anti-immigrant talk. But it's it's not all studies that find that with, with the wages, is it? It's sort of some studies and some studies find something else entirely. Yes. I think there is a preponderance of the evidence that there's been some negative impact on wages at the bottom end from immigration in the UK. But it's pretty small. Uh, At least almost all the studies seem to suggest that it's pretty small. So should we worry about it? Well, at one level, yes, because any negative impact on on wages for lower paid people is something we worry about. On the other hand, it's pretty small compared to other things going the other, you know, in, in that also affect wages at the lower end, the decline of trade union power, the increase in the minimum wage, changes to the tax credit system, all of those probably have a considerably greater impact on the living standards of lower paid people than immigration does. In terms of uh, my final sort of background question was really, is, is there much to distinguish um, EU immigration, especially before 2016, or even now, I suppose, um, although there's rather less of it now, to be fair, um, EU immigration from immigration from the rest of the world in terms of impact on wages, you know, uh, increases in productivity, general economic effects? Um, not much in terms of impact on jobs or wages or productivity. We just, we, or at least we, we can't see that. And we, don't know, we do know that EU migrants are different. They're more likely to come here for work. They're more likely to be here of, work, of working age. They're generally a bit younger. They generally work in somewhat lower skilled or lower paid jobs. Migrants from the West of the world are much more heterogeneous in some ways in the sense that uh, um, some of them are, coming through the skilled worker route, which means that they have to be fairly well qualified and fairly well paid. Others come through different routes, the family reunion route, the asylum route, or so on, um, where their their background and origins and their um, what, what they actually end up doing here may be very different indeed, because obviously people are coming here for reasons other than work. Um, their labor market outcomes may be very different. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the big sort of the, the, the great promised land that people like Raj offered was, was constantly this talk of um, a sort of points-based immigration system, or usually the, with the, you know, the Australian-style points-based immigration system. Can you walk us through just in, in the abstract what a system like that is and, and how it would operate? In the abstract, uh, a, you know, a points-based system is one that awards 
individuals points for various characteristics you know what they're how old they are what degree they have whether they speak english um uh, a number of other things and if you get another enough points you pass a a, a, you know, a a certain threshold and in some sense right um once free movement ends and you know to, and to the extent that you don't have free movement with other countries of course we will still have free movement with ireland any system looks a bit like that because <laughs> given that we're not going to have closed borders in the future nor are we going to have completely open borders you have to have some means of distinguishing between people who are allowed to come here to work and people who aren't mm. um you can call it a points-based system or not in fact what we have is a system what the government is proposing is a system which claims to be points-based but actually the main really the most important criterion by far is whether you have been offered a job um, at a certain skill level and a certain salary level. That's really the thing which determines whether you get will get a visa or not in the future. So although it's notionally points-based system, it's really almost simpler than just saying, look, if you're doing a job that's sufficiently skilled at a sufficient salary level, you will probably get a visa. There are some points-based tweaks around the edges, but that's the fundamental aspect of it that matters. How would you rate the, I mean, the Migration Advisory Committee is sort of the one that feeds in or ostensibly informs government policy, although obviously in political reality, it's a bit more complex than that. How would you rate the sort of work that they do, the attitude that they have towards these things and whether they're really listened to? Um, I think, um, you know, on the whole, it's certainly better that they exist than they don't. Um, it does <laughs> impose some constraints on the government in terms of, ensuring that there is decent quality evidence so that they can't and the government can't just ignore it. Um, obviously, the government continues to set the overall policy direction and the basic structure of the new system is determined by government, not by the Migration Advisory Committee. And frankly, I think that's both inevitable and right. I mean, I don't think we should pretend that immigration is, is not a political issue um, and that politicians shouldn't ultimately have control over what the system looks like. But I think the MAC is a useful discipline in in imposing some, you know, within their overall strategy determined by government, some requirement to be bound by the evidence in, in, in how it looks. And I think it's done a pretty good job of that. What do you think the impact, I mean, is the, the crucial fact for you then with the new system, insofar as we understand what it is from the information we've been given, is the requirement of a job offer before you come? That's right. So the different, you know, in Systems that are a bit more serious about the points-based element, like Australia and Canada, quite a lot of people come in without a job offer simply because they qualify on the basis of their personal characteristics, not the job that they're offered. We have opted to stay with a system which actually we've had for a very long time, where the primary uh, primary means of determining who should come here is whether you have, quote, the right, unquote, sort of job offer. (laughs) Um, And I think, uh, you know, there are arguments both ways on that. You know, on the one hand, their argument saying, well, you should let businesses in the market, when you're talking about economic migration, migration for work purposes, the primary determinant should be the market test. Can you actually get a job at, uh, at some level? On the other hand, you can say, well, you know, maybe you should take wider characteristics, the long-term potential, long-term potential of someone as determined by what sort of education they have, how old they are, what their degree is in, that sort of thing. In into account as well. 
Um, there's no, you know, there's no right answer here. I actually don't think that the government's proposed system is 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 bad at all. Actually, um, it's certainly a, a considerable improvement on on the uh, the what we what Theresa May was was planning to introduce. Would you expect there to be a reduction in immigration on if these tests are properly in, enforced, as opposed to you know the government taking the cheap way out and chucking a bunch of professions into the exemption category and, and making up for it that way? Slightly, uh, because the so the new system will have two effects. It'll make the system for EU nationals much less liberal than it currently is, because free mm-hmm. movement, which is a very liberal system indeed, will then <laughs> be replaced by this new system. So it'll be much considerably harder, more expensive, more bureaucratic, and less attractive for Europeans to come here. On the other hand, it will be more attractive for non-Europeans to come here because the system will be significantly more liberal for non-Europeans than it currently is because of the the lower salary threshold and lower skills threshold. How will those effects work out? Uh, On balance, they probably will lead to some reduction in immigration. But remember that migration from the EU has already fallen a lot since 2016 Mm -hmm. anyway. It didn't take the end of free movement to reduce migration from the EU. EU migration has almost dried up already, even before um, COVID. EU migration had fallen back to much lower levels. So most of the reduction, the post-Brexit reduction in migration um, from the EU has already happened. There's not really very far further to go. So I think that on net, the impact of this new system will not be to reduce migration by very much. Um, Although, of course, uh, uh, the assessing that is complicated by the impact of of, of COVID, and, and we just don't know what that will be. I mean, instinctively, it seems quite a difficult thing to do to apply from a, for a job from, you know, halfway across the world. Although, but the COVID sort of experience makes it suddenly feel much more intuitive, just in that we're so used to Zoom calls, we're so used to working remotely, that the idea of someone applying, you know, from Kenya for a job in London, you know, going through an interview process with Zoom, that actually doesn't seem that, that sort of difficult anymore. Um, that's right. Um, you know, when we... we it's very difficult to work out what the long-term impacts of, of this crisis will be on migration and interconnectedness in general, uh, because there are different impacts going potentially going in different directions. Obviously, immigration is dried up completely for the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's rather ironic that only a couple of months after the government finally dropped its absurd and discredited target to reduce immigration to the tens of thousands, um, <laughs> it, it. It, it has achieved it, yes. <laughs> Immigration is now zero or possibly negative, I would guess. Um, we'll never know because the statistics, we're not really collecting the statistics properly at the moment of, uh, either for obvious reasons. But I think it's fair to say that migration at the moment is pretty close to zero. Mm. You know, so we know we, that's a short-term impact, though. So where will we be in a year's time uh, is, is something that, that, that I simply don't know. And what will be the impact on you know, of more remote working? possibly more difficult travel, less office working. We, we genuinely don't know. Um, do you think we learned anything um, about the sort of Johnson administration's approach to immigration from the decision to allow some Hong Kong uh, residents to, to, to come over here? Or do, or do you think that was a sort of anomalous situation? I mean, I think it, it certainly does tell you something. Um, it says that the, uh, I mean, it is obviously a special case in a one-off, um, but uh, um, and it may well not lead to very significant migration flows. But nonetheless, it's an important 
symbol and signal. It shows that the government doesn't think that uh, the public is necessarily that concerned about levels of Im- immigration per se, um, and that on balance, uh, for geopolitical reasons and perhaps for the economic reasons, um, that the advantages of making this move outweigh any perceived political disadvantages or any perceived risk of a backlash. Um, so I think that is that is quite it tells us something about what the both what pu- where public opinion is and where the government thinks public opinion is and attitudes are and are likely to go. And that that is quite an important uh, uh, um, uh, message and signal, even if, as I said, it doesn't necessarily re- result in very uh, um, uh, large uh, migration flows. Yeah, I mean, this is the interesting. It's sort of the great un, unsung story at the moment is that there is, isn't there, like a long, sorry, not long term. It's about a ten-year trend from about 2011, as I understand it, towards a more positive public attitude towards immigration. It's gone down in salience. It's become less important as an issue to people, and also people seem to have a more favourable view of the impact that immigrants have in Britain. Do do, do we have? much of an idea of why that change has taken place? We really don't. Um, I mean, we can speculate. You know, as you said, the, the, some of these trends go back quite a long way. Some are, however, some of the more recent fall is almost certainly due to um, the impact of Brexit one way or another. Um, but there are very different mechanisms through which that could happen. Do people feel that they somehow have taken back control of immigration and let, mm. so they have to worry about it less? Um, is it simply that the media is producing fewer negative stories about immigrants, which they certainly have in the last few years? Is it that post-Brexit people have suddenly realized, perhaps because there's been more coverage of it, of the essential role that migrants play in some sectors and the damage that's done when people who we actually quite like to be here go back home, mm. uh, as some people, some EU nationals have done? All of those things probably play a part. Uh, but it's very difficult to to disentangle them. So we, we don't really fully understand what's going on now. And what about, uh, sort of finish off, what about the, the, the you know, very robust anti-immigration lobby that we've had really for the last sort of, you know, 15, you know, even longer years? I mean, things like um, there's an organization called Migration Watch, which pushes very hard. I mean, are they just in a state of complete disarray at the moment? You, you don't seem... Maybe I'm not reading the right newspapers, but it, it feels like you hear much less from them than one used to. Uh, I think that's right, and you know the media has not has you know, which amplified and gave them voice um, has largely decided it's not nearly as interested in in that particular agenda. That doesn't mean they couldn't come back, mm. uh, but uh, but they are considerably more marginalised. You know the the people in power for the most part um, at the moment. Um, to the extent that they care about immigration as a political issue, did so for instrumental reasons, not because they fundamentally um, believed that immigration was terrible for the UK. Uh, They may have used that in the Leave campaign to some extent, but that's not something that they are ideologically committed to. No one really believes that Boris Johnson, uh, for all his faults, has a deep prejudice um, uh, uh, against high levels of immigration. Hmm. Uh, He clearly doesn't. Uh, whereas Theresa May uh, absolutely did. So the political climate has changed quite significantly. As I said, now there are still people, you know, there are migration watches still out there. You still have people in academia like uh, uh, um, uh, Eric Kaufman and Matt Goodwin who are uh, um, predicting that there will be this backlash against the Johnson government because it isn't nasty enough to immigrants or, or in 
Professor Kaufman's case because uh, future immigrants won't be white enough for him. Um, <laughs> it's a lovely opinion. Uh, but uh, um, but so far, at least, there's not been any sign of that. Um, uh, now, it could change. You know, I don't pretend to know what the, the future politics of immigration will be. But at the moment, uh, as I say, that as you say, um, those voices have been mostly uh, pushed to the margins from the big political debates. Okay, that's, I have to tell you, I was not expecting it, but this has actually been one of the most upbeat bunker dailies that we've had for some time. <laughs> most, of the, most of the general trend, uh, you know, in, in the context of which you're speaking, as you seem to be going in a relatively positive direction. I wasn't expecting you to be so upbeat. Um, well, I think, you know, there is grounds for optimism, you know, compared to where we are two, where two years ago, the positive trend in public opinion is more firmly established and more clear and more generally accepted. Um, and there's no doubt that the current government is significantly more, whatever you think of other aspects of it, mm-hmm. its governance, the current government is significantly more liberal towards migration than Theresa May. Any government under Theresa May would have been, and um, current policy is heading in a more liberal direction. It's not to say there are, aren't all sorts of things wrong and all sorts of illiberal instincts um, on some issues inside and outside government. But overall, the, the broad direction is considerably more positive than it was, say, two years ago. So I am more optimistic. My first ever optimistic Bunker Daily interview. <laughs> I, will, I will frame this moment in my heart. Keep it, keep it full time. Thank you very much, Jonathan. You're very kind indeed. I hope you have a nice week. Thanks. You too. Thank you. That is your Bunker Daily. We will be back with uh, more shows on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays and with your standard full-length show on Wednesday. See you then. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunt. It was produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>